1208. This is Jeff Wagner. So, Eric, it's the first, first, it's the start of the first show of the week. Is it too soon to throw my producer under the bus? <laughs> no, it's not too soon to throw. He, he was off on Friday, and obviously... It's he, Monday. He, it, it, right. It, obviously, his, his head is still back there. Yeah. All right. Yeah. In, the, in the trade-off with Steve Scafidi, I, I was touting this this really, really interesting video that um, is going to be the subject of a discussion we're going to have in about 20 minutes or so. And so the, the word to text is statue. So I'm looking at all these different people that are texting statue. And normally when I see this, there's something that goes back to people, namely the link that we're going to send. And, and I'm not seeing that link. So I say to Gru, I said, are you sure? Now, you told me that you had this set up. Are you sure you had this set up? Because it, it, it doesn't appear to be working. And then, uh, oh, I didn't set it up as statue. I set it up as sculpture. All right, well, okay, statue is the word. So if you text me the word statue, S-T-A-T-U-E, to 414-799-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, you will see this. It's actually kind of a cute video as well. There's a larger issue here, but anybody who's ever been a small child or has small children can probably relate to this. But it's going to be the subject of an interesting conversation. The word is statue, S-T-A-T-U-E, 414-799-1620, and I will send you a link to the video. I'll explain the video later on so you can still participate even without seeing it. But but this is one. It, it only It runs about a minute, and it's um, sort of a cute one. And I think, like I say, it's something that almost everybody – can relate to and it will be an interesting conversation all right let us start off the program let me make sense of the supreme court decision that came out this morning which for all intents and purposes kills the challenge to the way political districts were drawn in wisconsin as a practical matter let let's kind of back up and there's two concepts that that go on here and i've i've read the entire decision so so you don't have to one of the one of the basic things, one of the things you learn early on in law school is that before you can bring a lawsuit, you have to have what is called standing. Standing means you have an interest in the case. For example, if my producer grew, um, is driving through an intersection on the way home from work today and somebody runs through the red light and hits and, and hurts. In damages his car and hurts him. I can't sue the person that drove through the red light. Why? Because I don't have an interest in that. I mean, I'm not a party to it. I wasn't directly affected. Gru, well, he clearly has what's known as standing. He was affected by this. So you need standing. You need to be affected directly by something. All right, so keep that in mind as I kind of review the basics of this lawsuit. In Wisconsin, there are 99 separate assembly districts. So there's 99 state representatives. Every assembly district is required to have, by the Constitution, approximately the same number of people in it. So you take the overall population of the state of Wisconsin, you divide it by 99, and each Senate district has to ha- each assembly district has to have approximately the same number of people. Um, after and it's all based on the census. So after the 2010 census, it was determined that every Wisconsin assembly district has to have about 57,500 people, approximately. And then each Senate district is then is three of the assembly districts. So each Senate district has about 172,000, roughly. All right. 
Well, what happens is every 10 years, the assembly districts have to be redrawn based on the population change. For example, you know, in 2010, maybe you have an assembly district in the city of Milwaukee that has 57,500 people. But over the next, the ensuing 10 years, maybe three or 4,000 people have moved out of that district and they've moved elsewhere. So now you've only got 54,000 people, not 57,005. So you have to, every 10 years, you have to redraw the districts to make them roughly equal in, to make them equal in population. So you're going to have to change the boundaries a little bit. Who redraws the districts? In Wisconsin and in the vast majority of states, it is a political process. What happens is it's the governor and it's both houses of the legislature that get together and they draw the districts. What happens in a situation, though, where you have like a Democratic governor and a Republican legislature and they can't agree? Well, if they can't agree, what happens then is a federal panel, panel of federal judges, they'll come in and they'll draw the districts. But the first move is to have the legislature draw it. In Wisconsin, after Governor Walker's election in 2010, Republicans, like they do now, controlled everything. They controlled the governor's office. They controlled the state assembly. They controlled the state senate. So because it was all Republicans, they got to draw the maps as they saw fit. And they drew the various maps. And that's what this litigation has been all about. When you hear the term gerrymandering, what historically that means is trying to draw the maps in a way that benefits one party and discriminates against others. It is illegal to gerrymander based on race. For example, let's say that you have, well, a heavily minority district and you don't want, you know, they they decide that, you know, you don't want, we don't want minorities getting elected. So you draw the lines, you restructure the district to dilute the impact of the minority vote. That's unconstitutional. Well, what happened in 2010 in Wisconsin, allegedly, was that the Republicans redrew the map, not based on racial lines, not to go after any protected classes, but rather to make it easier for Republicans to get elected. Well, how did they do that? Well, in Wisconsin, the majority of the state, geographically, is Republican. The majority of county sheriffs are Republican. The majority of of county district attorneys are Republican. The Geographically, there's more Republicans spread throughout the state. However, there are a bunch of Democrats, but the Democrats tend to cluster. Democrats, the city of Milwaukee is probably... 80%, maybe more, Democratic. The city of Madison, probably 85% Democratic. So Democrats choose to cluster in particular areas. So this lawsuit says, well, what's happened is you've drawn these districts to put all the Democrats together. We understand that they all live together, but you've drawn it to um, put them all together. So what happens is you have Democrats running in some areas, and they're, they're, they can't lose. I mean, the, the district is 75 80% Democrat. Republicans have no chance to win. But the lawsuit says, so you've got lot, some of these districts that are heavily Democrat, 
But as a result, you have more districts that are heavily Republican. Well, the reason there's more districts that are heavily Republican is, again, outside of the major urban areas, for all intents and purposes, the state is primarily Republican. And the only way, as a practical matter, you could deal with this, I think, would be to have all sorts of like weird splits. Like, all right, we're going to try to figure out how to balance Republicans and Democrats, so we'll run a district from the city of Milwaukee all the way up the North Shore into Ozaki County. I think it would be impractical. In my opinion, this lawsuit has always been a complete and total non-starter. Nevertheless, nevertheless, it's gone up through and reached the Supreme Court today. And the Supreme Court came out with its decision. When we come back, I'll explain what the Supreme Court did and why they got it right. 1217, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1226, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, here, here is the story. Um, in, in most communities, there are public buildings that you can rent out for private events. The, the, the Mitchell Park Domes, for example. I mean, one of the ways they make money is you can, if you want to have a party, you want to have a, a, a wedding reception at the Mitchell Park Domes, you can make arrangements and, and you can rent out that, that building. Lots of community centers are are like that. The old bus depot, when it used to be the bus depot down on um, like Michigan and uh, Lincoln Memorial Drive, you could rent that out. These were public spaces, but you could rent them out for various events. Well, the story I'm going to tell you about, um, it's interesting. It comes from Kansas City, and it's called the the place involved is one of those places. It's a go. It's a public community center. It's called the um, Overland Park Tomahawk Ridge Community Center. All right. So, and I would assume, again, it's not like the zoo, but you could rent rooms out at the zoo, that type of thing. So what happens is this couple has a wedding at this community center. Now, in the community center, like you go into the lobby and stuff, and they have a number of different displays of various types of artwork. You know, you kind of like walk into the room. It's not just a, a blank room. You walk in, there's a reception area, and then it spins off, and there's different rooms. But there's different pieces of artwork, and there's some paintings, and there's some sculptures, and there's some smaller things that are under glass. All right? So that's the story. So what happens is this this couple goes, and they attend the, the wedding reception with the bride and groom, and they bring a couple kids. They've got like a five- and a six-year-old kid. So what happens here is... The bride and groom are getting ready to leave, and guests are starting to leave. So the parents are there with their two kids, ages five and six. And what happens is they're, is they're saying goodbye to the bride and groom. So they're down the ways. The kids run out into the, the common area, into like the, the lobby of the, this community center, where there's a number of pieces of various types of artwork and sculpture. Well, what happens is, and this is caught on this video, the five-year-old, being like a five-year-old, is standing there looking at this kind of glass bust that, that's up on, uh, again, on a little podium. And it, it's above him, and but it, it's right out there in the area. And so what happens is the five-year-old, being a five-year-old, starts to kind of reach up and try to kind of climb onto this glass bust. Well... You can see it rocking back and forth, and then the glass bus starts to move. The bus starts to move, and you can see the kid try to try to steady it, but that ain't happening. 
and the glass bust goes slamming down onto the ground. And the, the head is cracked and the arms are cracked, and the kid kind of looks both ways and then runs off. <laughs> okay, then, then he, then he kind of runs off. All right, so, you know, but he, kids are being kids. Well, what happens then is the, the artist, now the artist who, who made this glass bust had like donated this to this community center for display, trying to sell it. He hadn't given it to them, but it was here. Let's display this, you know, with a price tag on it, as they often do. The artist claims the thing is worth $132,000. Now, that's his asking price. Nobody had bought it, but that is his asking price. But nevertheless, the five-year-old has pulled down the glass statue bust worth, the artist says, 132000 bucks, but it's busted. So what happens next is the insurance company for the community center that represents the, the government, they send the parents a note saying, you fail to properly supervise your kid. You owe us $132,000. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Should the parents be responsible for paying? Do they, in fact, yes, it, it's true that their five-year-old um, ran down the hall and kind of grabbed onto the statue that was out where anybody could have touched it. There weren't guards around it. It wasn't cordoned off by, like, ropes or anything. The five-year-old kind of grabbed at it. The thing fell off. All right, should the parents have to pay $132,000? If you want to see the video, 414-799-1620, uh, text me the word statue. We're going to talk about this in just a minute. All right, are the parents on the hook? Should the parents have to pay? 1236, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I'll tell you where I come down on this in just a moment, but I want us to think this through. Bottom line is parents take their kids to this wedding reception that is in a, a public building. Think like the Mitchell Park Domes. In the public building, there's various pieces of artwork that local artists have donated because they want to display their they want to display their their stuff. So the kids are there, four kids are there, they're all young. Mom and dad are there. Everybody's getting ready to leave. Parents are saying goodbye. The kids are out ahead of them. They go into one of these common areas, and there's this glass bust that's been donated by an artist, and one of the kids comes up to it. It's not cordoned off. It's just out there, and one of the kids goes up, and he tries to kind of touch it or hug it or whatever and knocks the thing off. It doesn't appear to me he intended to do it, but he touches it. He's five years old. He doesn't know, I think, that you're not supposed to touch these things. He does. The thing falls and breaks. The sculptor claims that this thing is worth $132,000, and now the city is trying to collect that amount of money from the parents. Should they have to pay, and under what conditions? 414-799-1620. Let's start with Carl in Kenosha. Carl on WTMJ, hello. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. What do you think? I think no, because first of all, it was donated, and if it did have a for sale sign on it, I should have kept that home if it was worth that much money. And you made a great point. It was not cordoned off or properly enclosed where no one right. can touch it, not even Jesus. You know what I mean? I mean, seriously, if it's worth that much money. So, no, do not. Well, what about the idea, though, that you're not supposed to, I mean, obviously most of us know that you're not supposed to go up and, and touch that kind of artwork. Um, th does the fact that the kid was allowed to do that does that well, does that make any difference? Well, he's in something too. How old is this kid? Five. Okay, he's not like he's twelve or nope. fourteen. He's nope. five years old. He doesn't know. He sees something shiny, and like you know, like he sees something shiny. Right. So no, but you're not big. 
Okay, thanks for call. 414-799-1620. Again, I'll tell you where I come down in just a minute. But, okay, imagine if that's your kid. And, I mean, I, I think that's why this is kind of an instantly relatable story. You're at the domes. You're at what whatever, and they've got displays and stuff that are in one of the common areas. You're you're watching your kid. You've got him under supervision, but, you know, he's ahead of you. You're a little bit behind, and the kid sees this attractive thing, touches the bus, the thing falls over. You know, should you be on the hook for that? 414-799-1620. And, again, I don't think the child intended to knock it over them. I, I think think we can just assume he just didn't know. He just kind of goes, he sees this pretty thing, he goes to grab it, and it just, he causes it to fall. George in Illinois. George, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Do you think they do you think the parents should have to pay? It's a sticky wicket. It um, is. <laughs> I have, I'm a dog breeder, and they're fairly large dogs. They're Briards. And if I'm at the park and I take my dog off the leash... And he runs out and gnaws on somebody else's dog or, God forbid, bites somebody. Mm-hmm. Who's, who's responsible? The well, dog you, doesn't know it's better. You, well, you're going to be, as the dog owner, you're going to be responsible if your dog bites somebody, for example. Sure. Right. So who's responsible when their child, at a function like that, is left to wander? Parents aren't paying enough attention or sidetracked with something, and it happens. Personally, I'm responsible for my dog. They're responsible for their kids. Do you think it's fair to equate children and, and dogs? Um, a five-year-old yeah. has the intelligence of my dogs. I have five, five-year-old dogs, okay. and they're trained. I say, stop, whoa. They stop, turn around, and look at me, why? Right. They, I don't know. Yeah. Because I don't have kids, it's really hard to say what's controlling your kids. Okay. All right. No, thanks for the call. 414-799-1620. I guess I'm having trouble with the, I'm, you, I'm having trouble equating dogs with, with children. And I guess to me, one of the ways I look at this is were the parents negligent? Now keep in mind, they're, they're, they're not suing the five-year-old. They're, they're suing the parents. They're essentially saying you didn't exercise proper supervision and you didn't watch your kid to allow this type of thing to happen. Because they're not suing the five-year-old. They're suing the parents. And I think the theory is going to be you were negligent. You had an obligation to watch your kid. Now, viewed in that light, all right, again, um, imagine this. You're you're there with your children. And actually, I think I said, I said two. They actually had four small children. You're there at this reception in this public building. It's the two of you, mom and dad. You've got the four kids. You've kind of been watching them, but you're getting ready to leave, and the kids are heading out the door, as kids are doing. Now, you, you don't have them all. They're, they're not all roped together or anything like that. And the one kid, as he's kind of heading out, sees this attractive little statue and starts playing on it. I mean, are mom and dad negligent because they were around the corner and were letting the kid go ahead? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Let's talk to Steve in Oak Creek. Steve, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Good afternoon. Okay. Do you think the parents should be held liable? I want to take this back before the parents even arrived there. What is the agreement between the donator, the artist, and the community building? Okay, I want this displayed here. It's going to have a price tag on it. You have to take reasonable care of it. Right. Did the city take any reasonable care of it? Was there any negotiation of, hey, you should have ropes? 
Or did he just drop it off and say, here, put this somewhere? I, I don't understand why it wouldn't be cordoned off if it's worth $130,000. Right. <laughs> that has to go all the way back to that. And in short, then, to answer your question, no, the city was the city <laughs> did not take proper care of this item. Again, not knowing any sort of lease or borrow or legal agreement behind it. Right. Okay. Thanks. Well, that's, I mean, that's the other interesting thing about this. I mean, should, if, if this really was, and again, the, the claim for $132,000, that's what the, the sculptor says, it, that's, that's what the artist says it wor- was worth. Nobody, which was what, what he was at, his asking price for it, nobody had, had purchased it. So, I mean, that, that's fine. I can say, hey, this pen I've got in my hand, I, it's yours for $22,000. Well, that doesn't mean it's worth $22,000. It, it's only worth what somebody's going to be willing to pay for it. So that's this whole other issue. Now, the city... And through its insurer is saying to the the parents, you know, we want one hundred and thirty two thousand dollars. Let's talk to Kevin in Caledonia. Kevin, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi, thanks for taking my call, Hi, Kevin. I think uh, the parents are responsible, and uh, I have a, a, a small example, not on the same scale. But, <laughs> thank uh, thank goodness kids, it wasn't one hundred thirty two grand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But one of my kids, when they were about that age, uh, threw an object onto my neighbor's garage roof, and it rolled down and fell on a visitor that had a brand new vehicle and it put a very small dent in the foot of this brand new car. Okay. Um, they came over, told me about it. Um, that's why I have insurance. I called up my homeowner's insurance and I said, Hey, my kids threw this, this object in it and it put a dent in this car. They paid for it. Um, I, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's in, until your kids are, are of age and on their own and can be held legally responsible, you are responsible for your children. And, like I said, in my situation, I took that responsibility, and I used the the, uh, the, the insurance that I had so that it didn't come out of my pocket. Uh, but, uh, you know, let me, that's how I feel. Do you think, is there a difference between, do you think that the, the parents, as a threshold, have to be negligent? I mean, um, what if, for example, what if they're they're all together, they're walking out, and the kid, as five-year-olds are want to do, heck, as adults are want to do, the kid just trips. Let's say it's a complete and total accident. The kid, he's with mom and dad. The kid trips, bang, and, you know, falls into this statue, falls into this bust, and knocks it over, and the same thing happens. If the kid had just tripped while walking with mom and dad, would you feel the same way? I, I do feel the same way. I think we're responsible for whatever happens if you're in a store and you damage something whether it be intentional or accidental i i think that 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 the person that owns that particular object shouldn't have to pay for your misfortune if you happen to have an accident or whatever it happens to be and i think kids at that age they don't have the the thought processes that they can think of what what may happen for their mm-hmm. actions yeah, but no, you would. But even if it was a complete and total accident, you would have still yeah. say that the parents would be yeah. like, "Okay, the thing, right?" And no, this wasn't a complete and total accident. This was the kid is is walking by. Now, I, the way I understand this, the the artist, the guy who donated the sculpture, he says, "I want one hundred thirty two grand," and he's making a claim against the city, and so it's now the city saying, okay, we want you to reimburse us because we're going to have to pay the artist if that changes the dialogue. When we come back, I'll tell you where I come down on this, and we'll take a couple more calls. If you want to see the video, and actually it's kind of a I, – I nobody got hurt. The statue is, is, of course, the only thing that's worse for wear. But it's sort of a – it's a cute video. 
in the sense that you can just see the kid just kind of like trying to play with it, and then it starts to fall over, and then, you know, nobody gets hurt, which is the good news about this. Uh, text me the word statue, S-T-A-T-U-E, to 414-799-1620. Um, we'll back, we're back to wrap this up and then move on to other stuff in just a minute. 1246, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1250, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Let's talk to Peggy in West Milwaukee. Hi, Peggy. Hi, Jeff. I, I could go both ways on this issue. Um, which is what way, makes it I such a talkable topic. <laughs> which is, which is, right, because you're going, oh, my God, that could happen to anybody. My kid just pushed over this sculpture that they say is worth a hundred grand. Yeah. Yeah, I could go either way. And, and the thing is, I was with my grandchildren at Brookfield Square a couple years back, and to my negligence, I let them run ahead of me to go into this toy store. I was a couple doors down, and the oldest one was 12. That was with them. There were three of them. And one of them got on a toy, the eight-year-old got on a toy that was all out there for the kids to try, and he broke it. And my other two came running to me saying they won't let Kyle go because he broke a toy and they want you to pay for it, so you've got to come and get him or they're going to call the police. Well, I went there, and I talked to them, and they said, well, he broke it. I said, how do you know it wasn't broke when he got on it? They said, well, because he got on it and it was broke when he got off. So they made me pay $70 to get my kids back, my grandkids back, and they also would not let me have the thing that he broke. They told me they, they couldn't give it to me, and I paid for it full price. Well, that's ridiculous. What's the thing that you see in stores? You broke it, you bought it? Well, it seems to me if your kid broke it or your grandkid broke it, you bought it then. You bought it, right. But if they got these out there for kids to play on, how many kids played on that toy before he was on it? So I didn't know that he broke it. I didn't argue I, a little bit I did. But I wouldn't want to be the parents. And who's to say that the value of that bus is what he said it is? I don't believe that. Well, right. That's right. I, like I say, that's what the artist asks for it, you know, but which there's is always wiggle room. You know that. Well, there's probably a lot of wiggle room. I mean, especially when it's artwork. I think this is a priceless thing. Well, okay. Everything's got a price. All right. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Let's talk to Carol in Pewaukee. Carol, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi there. Hi, Carol. Um, I was just explaining. I'm an artist. And if I have my oil paintings or my acrylic in my home, and I think they're a you, I I need to have them insured. Right. And any artist that displays their work in a gallery, sometimes the gallery has insurance for that stuff. Right. If they do not, then the artist is still responsible. I mean, if I have a fire and I lose all my art, I should have an insurance policy that's going to pay me back. Mm-hmm. If this had been a fire instead of a child, who would be paying for his artwork? Yeah, it would be the insurance company, right. 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 So I would think it's, it's the artist and the city's problem that somebody didn't make sure that there was some kind of insurance, no matter where your art is displayed, there should be some kind of insurance on it. Okay, Carol, let me ask you this. Let's say you're, it's the same sort of, you are, you are displaying your artwork at a community center. That's what this was, okay? So you've got it on display. I'm there as a guest at the, you know, it's it's a showing of art, your stuff and other people. I'm there, and I've got a glass of red wine, and I'm standing there looking at your painting, and then I go to, I, I sneeze. I have a sneezing fit or something, and or somebody bumps into me, and boom, the red wine goes all over your, your artwork, you know, effectively ruining it. Am, am I responsible if that happened by accident, do you think? No, no, okay. because I do believe all artists or people that are uh, displaying their artwork 
One of the two should have insurance, Mm -hmm. no matter where that art is. Mm -hmm. In case anything happens, it could be a number of things that could happen. Doesn't have to be a small child. Doesn't have to be a glass of wine. (laughs) Somebody could have knocked over a candle and a fire took all of the artwork. Right. Now, my understanding, again, from the insurance perspective, my understanding is the community, the, 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 this Overland Park, they've got insurance. And so the artist says to them, okay, my, my bust has been damaged. I want $132,000. And now the insurance company is saying, okay, well, we want to go after the person that's responsible. You know, so we're going to go try to collect that money from the, the child, or in this case, the parents. I, I, you know, I, I think this is an interesting and it's a difficult sort of thing. To me, it all hinges on were the parents negligent? Um, you know, did they fail to properly supervise the, the child? And I guess just based on what I'm seeing, I, I don't know, just letting your kid run ahead to me is necessarily a failure to properly supervise. I, I think it's not like they were just letting the children run wild. They were on the way out. The kids just ran ahead beforehand. And I do think from the perspective of the community, if this was really a, a valuable piece, really worth one hundred and thirty two grand or whatever, I, I do think it should have been cordoned off in some way. I'm I'm skeptical about going after the kids and about the kids parents. And what I wonder is if the kid ended up getting hurt. Okay, then who's responsible for this? Seems to me there's a lot of blame to go around, but it seems to me the, the community center has a lot to blame on itself. Just saying. 1255 Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Just a couple minutes. It's a really interesting story. Do you mind if cops look at your driver's license photo if they're trying to figure out who committed a crime? And we're going to be talking about the mess and immigration at the border. We're going to be talking about whether we want to spend $200 million in downtown Milwaukee on the convention center. And the Racine SWAT team likes to shoot dogs. Now there's a lawsuit about it. Stick around. It's 1256. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 109. This is Jeff Wagner. So, Eric, every once in a while there are stories and you read them and you say, glad that's not me. All right? You know, you, you see that from time to time? Oh, yeah. All right. Here's one from yes. the world of radio. And I think we can both say it's glad. We're glad it's not us. WGOWFM Chattanooga morning host Jeff Stiles wounded, charged in road raid inc- incident. Chattanooga Morning Drive host Jeff Stiles, is from Talkers Magazine, has been charged with aggravated assault and vandalism after a Friday afternoon road rage incident that left him with a gunshot wound wow. in his arm. WRCB-TV Chattanooga reports that Stiles, Morning Drive co-host on Cumulus Media's News Talk WGOW-FM Chattanooga, and fellow motorist Nicholas Bullington were involved in a road rage incident late Friday afternoon that ended after Stiles, that would be the radio guy, allegedly attacked Bullington's car with a military-grade tomahawk, whatever a military-grade tomahawk (laughs) might be, and Bullington responded by shooting Stiles in the arm with a handgun. Stiles was treated at a local hospital and arrested the following day. The TV report includes a statement from Stiles' lawyer alleging that Bullington was the aggressor and Stiles was the victim. Stiles hosts the Morning Press with co-host Jim Reynolds and program news director Kevin West. Do we huh. know if was he on the air this morning? I, what do you want to bet? <laughs> you know, that's, so, so for, I mean, this would be kind of our message to our, our bosses. As frustrating as he might get with us from time to time, at least it's not, gee, guess what Eric Bilstead, or guess what Gene Miller was up to on Friday <laughs> afternoon, you know, pulled out yeah. his military-grade tomahawk on the freeway and started attacking somebody.
No, I don't think I don't see Gene doing that. No, I just don't. Right. No, maybe maybe an, like an empty beer can or something, but not not a military grade tomahawk. No, <laughs> no, no. So that's one of those things that. How did you spend your weekend? Well, I was in the jail. You know, I was in the lockup. No, not going to happen. Seven nine nine. How did you spend your jail time? <laughs> yeah. No. All right. Let's get serious for a, a moment here. When you go to get your driver's license, in as a condition of getting your driver's license, they take your photo. Now, Grew, this you might not know this, but but this is before your time. But there was a period of time in Wisconsin, like when I got my driver's license when I was sixteen, where they they weren't there weren't pictures on the driver's licenses. The driver's licenses weren't these laminated things; they were just like these little sort of paper cards, and they didn't have your picture on them. And I've told this story before, but back then the drinking age was eighteen, and if you wanted to prove that you were eighteen to to drink. You couldn't have your driver's license because it didn't have your picture on it. You had to go and buy a separate ID. And for reasons I can't exactly explain, I still carry my ID. And my only defense is we all looked like that back when I was at why I thought the long hair and the leisure suit was a good idea. I don't know, but I still have that. But regardless, nowadays, in all 50 states, if you're going to get a driver's license, you have to get a picture of yourself. Also, if you get a passport... The passport, you have to get a passport photo taken. All right. So in Wisconsin and in all the other states, those those driver's license pictures, the one that's on your driver's license, they are uploaded into a computer data bank somewhere. State of Wisconsin has all our pictures there. Well, one of the trends in law enforcement is now there have been developments in computer technology so they can use what they call facial recognition technology. It is possible nowadays for law enforcement to take a photo. Let's say, you know, you turn on the TV news at 10 o'clock and it seems like on an almost nightly basis there's a picture of somebody who's robbing a 7-Eleven or robbing some store. And, you know, they always have the note, does anybody know this, this man or this woman? You know, they've got that picture. What law enforcement can do is it can now take that picture that they have. And you have no idea who this is. All you see, it's the guy, you know, with the, you know, in, in the 7-Eleven. And they can go to, for example, the, the database of driver's licenses pictures, and they can compare it. They can run that picture of the suspect through the entire universe of of driver's license pictures they have, and they can look for a match. Now, you know, it, it's not sure that you're going to get an absolute match or anything, but they can use, it's called facial recognition technology, where they try to match, again, the picture of the suspect they have with a known picture in the driver's license bank. Now, it, it might be the person doesn't have a driver's license, so, I mean, this isn't going to work 100% of the time, and it's possible that they might come up with multiple matches, you know, because it, it can't be a perfect sort of thing. But it is a technique that law enforcement uses. An increasing number of police departments across the country are doing precisely this. They are running images of suspects through driver's license databases in order to help with their investigation, which brings me to the story I want to talk to you about. Little town, Hagerstown, Maryland small city um, in Maryland, what happens is there's a, there's a, a woman who says that some guy 
she thought was, she vaguely recognized him as a co-worker, but didn't know his name or anything, came to her apartment and at gunpoint stole her iPhone and 650 bucks. She said, I really don't know this guy, but um, he's a former co-worker. I have an Instagram photo of him from before. So she gives the cops the Instagram photo. They run this through the state driver's license uh, database um, using this facial recognition promo, uh, uh, this facial recognition system that they have, and the, the image comes back. They find that there's a photo, a driver's license, that matches the Instagram photo, and it turns out to be this particular guy. So then they use that information. They go out. They get a search warrant. They search his place. They find money. They find the iPhone. They find the gun, all those different types of things. This has created a controversy in this small community, but it's also a controversy that's occurring in other communities around the country. As the defendants say, wait a second, and some privacy advocates say, wait a second. You know, this you shouldn't be able to use this technology for law enforcement purposes. It's unfair and unreasonable. The argument would be, look, um, you agree to allow to ha- your photo to be taken for the driver's license. You don't have any choice. You want to get the driver's license. You have to have the photo taken. You are not agreeing to have your image be put in some database that now the government is going to be looking at every time they're looking for a suspect in a crime. All right, 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is this big brother going too far? Do you object to law enforcement? You've got the photograph. This is the guy that robbed the 7-Eleven. You don't know who it is. Do you object to them running that photo through the state driver's license data bank looking to see if maybe you get a photographic match? Now, again, I, I know this isn't going to be a perfect sort of thing, and you're probably never going to be able to convict somebody just on that match, but it would give you, theoretically, it gives the cops a clue as to who it is that they're looking for. Do you think police should be able to do that, or is that an invasion of your privacy? 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. My take I got no problem with it at all. And the truth of the matter is, if it helps get criminals off the street, I don't think you have a right to privacy in your photo. And if law enforcement can match it, I say more power to them. But what do you think? 414-799-1620. Do you feel violated? Is it an invasion of your privacy that the government might be running your picture, my picture, through and comparing it with pictures of people who are committing crimes. Does that bother you? We discuss next. It's 118. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 121. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Was Donald Trump's election a fluke, or did it represent a fundamental shift in the electorate that will have repercussions for Republicans and Democrats for years to come? Gene Miller has the latest 751 tomorrow on Wisconsin's Morning News. Be sure to tune in. Okay, 414-799-1620. Here's one of the things that happens now. When you go get your driver's license, they take your photograph. And your photograph goes into some giant data bank that's out there. More and more law enforcement all across the country are using computer technology to match those driver's license photos with photos of suspects who they don't know who they are but who have committed a crime. 
you know, you see that grainy photo of the guy that's robbing the 7-Eleven. And the police are saying, does anybody know who it is? Well, one of the techniques law enforcement is using is taking that picture and running it through all these computer data banks of like driver's licenses, looking to see if they get a match. If they get a match, well, then they're kind of off to the races. They know who to kind of hone in on. All right, some privacy advocates say, no, 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 you should not be able to do this just because you give the government permission to take your driver, your photo for a driver's license doesn't mean you're giving law enforcement permission to search this database to see if maybe you're the guy that committed a crime. 414-799-1620. Let's start with Joe in Appleton. Joe, you're first. Hello. Hello. Hi, Joe. What do you think? Hey, I've got zero issues with this. I venture to say that they probably use the same or a similar database, say if they have your, oh, I don't know, your license plate. What are they going to check that information and then find out who you are or your address? Right. They're using a similar database. They're just utilizing technology to their advantage to catch a crook. You don't like it, don't commit a crime. Well, you know, that. You know, I think that's the way to look at it. For example, um, I mean, I think historically – uh, law enforcement, let's say, would use high school yearbooks. Let's say you've got a story, and somebody comes in and says, God, I, I was just, it's one of the kids at the local high school who came over and stuck a gun in my face and, and took all the money in the cash register. And, would you know, would it, would it be unreasonable for law enforcement to go grab, for example, a high school yearbook and say, okay, here, let's look through the last couple years of the high school yearbook, see if you see the kid's photo. It, it, this is just that same premise you know, carried admittedly one step further because you're using the computer and you're looking at hundreds of thousands of different photos, but it's the same basic principle, it seems to me. I agree. I, I think it's kind of ironic, too, that it's likely the same people that complain that we had to make sure everybody had a valid ID and a driver's license to be able to vote. Right, exactly. Thanks for calling. Now, if you're worried, now here's the bottom line. If you're worried that your picture, if you're planning to commit crimes, and you're worried that, gee, my picture on my driver's license might link me to the crime, well, okay, you always have another choice, which is don't get a driver's license. Or, of course, the obviously simple, the most obvious answer is don't go commit crimes. But if, again, you're, you're worried that I'm planning to knock off a 7-Eleven and, gee, I've got my driver's license on file and the camera might get my picture, sorry, I'm not going to be too terribly sympathetic to you. But, again, that's just me. Charlie in Fond du Lac. Charlie, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Yeah, I mean, the, the previous guy stole my thunder a little bit, but yeah, I mean, I'm 100% with all of you guys, you know, and you know, if you don't do a crime... <laughs> don't worry don't about it. Don't worry about nothing. Yeah. Well, well, right, exactly. I mean, thanks for calling. And this isn't, I, I mean, your your face, this isn't like somebody is coming into your house and rooting through your drawers looking for evidence. I mean... This is this is your face, and I don't think you have a right to privacy for that, but this is it's a public document. I mean, it is the driver's license. The matter is is public. And I think that when you decide that you're going to get the driver's license, you give well, I mean, what I'm going to describe and what a couple people in the text line are describing is implied consent. You say, Okay, this is this is government, this is what I look like. And I think it would be ridiculous to say you can use that if you're stopped for a traffic stop to determine whether you're that person, you can you make that inquiry. When you show that, the uh, guy's going to look at it to see if you're old enough to drink, you know, kind of compare the face to, you know, the person who gives him the card. But to say we're not going to use computer technology to try to t- catch bad guys, uh, and again, I don't have a problem with this. And if it catches bad guys, God bless them. Mike in Van Dyne. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hello. 
Yes. Hi, Mike. Uh, good afternoon. Yes, sir. Um, I concur. I think that the police should have the right to use any tool that can take a person with who commits a felony, a felony off the street. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's just ridiculous not to think that that they can't do that. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not, Mike. Thanks. I mean, I'm not willing to go that far. You say any tool. Well, I mean, you you do have there are there are constitutional protections. You know. Right, the search and seizure and things like that in the Fourth Amendment. So I'm not prepared to say any tool, but this is a situation where your your driver's license photo is a matter of public record. It is used by the government in all sorts of different ways. Your passport photo would be the same thing. And, you know, once the government has it for that purpose, to say that law enforcement can't use it, I, I think is is the height of absurdity. I would be shocked shocked if any courts start to stop this and i will tell you something you know i started exploring this story real interestingly new york state of all places has been very very aggressive in using this type of technology and it's amazing the number of convictions that they are getting using this technology now in this particular case this case i was talking about out of maryland it was an armed robbery new york state is being aggressive in using this for identity theft um well what what better way to catch people who are, you know, stealing your identity than to be able to, like, kind of match who you really are on your driver's license versus the person who's trying to show up and claim to be you? It's been just a godsend in trying to deal with identity theft. I got no issues. 127, this is Jeff Wagner. When we come back, yeah, we're going to go where angels fear to tread. We're going to talk about what's going on at the border, and in my opinion, who is really to blame for the mess with kids being separated from their parents who are trying to come in illegally? And I'll give you a clue. It's not President Trump. It's not the Republicans. It's not even the Democrats. Stick around. It's 127. This is Jeff Wagner. What if there was a way to turn back time? 136, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, the immigration issue du jour is the supposedly heartless approach that the Trump administration has taken to dealing with immigrants, illegal immigrants, and their children. All right, let's kind of review the bidding on this. Our southern border is an absolute and total mess. Let's just start off with that. You have people coming across illegally in droves. The policy has been for the longest time that if you have people who come into this country illegally, and it's a family, it's a husband and wife, and it's kids, what they do is they don't take you into custody permanently. You'll be arrested, you'll be taken to a facility, and then you will be released pending a hearing, right? The problem with that is a good portion of the people who are released pending a hearing never show up. They just disappear into, you know, this country, never to be seen again or ultimately, you know, apprehended five, six, seven years later. They just don't show up. Well, what President Trump is trying to do is discourage that. So he has said, okay, here's the way we're going to handle this. If you come into this country illegally with your children, you are going to be detained. We're not just going to do this catch and release thing of turning you loose. But at the same time, you know, we're not going to keep your children in custody. You know, we're not going to lock them up. The law stops us from doing that. So the result is 
they take the children, they separate them from the adults, and the children are housed in some sort of temporary detention facility. And that's what's leading to all this controversy and angst. Oh, they're splitting up these families. And some people are saying, well, it's President Trump to blame. This is so incredibly heartless. And the numbers are, what do I have here? The most recent numbers, and this is the latest anti-Trump thing du jour from the New York Times, separated at the border from their parents in six weeks, 1,995 children. The argument, oh, this is heartless. You're breaking up these families. And they find these various people who've come into the country illegally who are going, they took my kids away. Well, they, they separated the families. It's true. They haven't locked up the kids. The kids are being housed separately while the parents are, their, their cases are in fact being processed. And the folks that are trying for asylum saying that they're coming from, I don't know, somewhere in Central America, you know, maybe they'll be allowed to stay and they'll be reunited. The people who will be ordered deported, well, they'll be reunited, reunited. But while this is going on, the parents are separated from the kids. The problem, of course, being that since you can't lock up the children with the parents, the only other option we've had, again, is this catch and release thing. You turn the parents loose with the kids, and they disappear into the, the ether of this country. So President Trump is being blamed for this, and you've got the Republicans who don't like the visuals of you know kids being separated from their parents, and I, I certainly don't like that either. But let me take an approach which maybe is unduly simplistic. I don't think this is President Trump's problem fault i don't think it's the democrats fault i don't think it's the republicans fault who is to blame for this well it's the people that are making the decision to illegally come across the border and bring their children with them none of this stuff happens if the people don't decide to come across the border illegally if they wait on the other side of the border and apply for asylum status, this doesn't happen. If they go through other channels to be allowed to be legally admitted, none of this happens. The only reason this becomes an issue is because you have people who make the conscious decision to come across the border illegally. And I think what's happened over the years is I think that there's a lot of people who figured out how to game the system. They've known if we bring our kids with us, we're not going to get locked up. We're going to get released, and then we're just going to kind of take our chances. Trump is trying to shut off that loophole. But this problem, if you want to figure out who's to blame, it's the parents who come into this country illegally bringing their kids along. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And what Trump is trying to do, what the president is trying to do, is discourage people from coming into this country illegally, knowing that if, at least in the past, if they've brought their children along, well, what they've done is they've used the the children essentially as a get-out-of-jail-free card. So viewed in that light, is this this incredibly heartless procedure Or is it just a necessary effort to try to control our border? And again, if you don't want to run afoul of this problem, if you don't want to be separated from your family, I understand all that. It's simple. Don't come into this country illegally dragging your kids along. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is this really as incredibly heartless and awful procedure, or is this... 
just really kind of a common sense thing. My guess is there's not too many countries in this world that you could enter illegally, essentially, and, and have no consequences for that. 414-799-1620. And to me, again, lost in this entire discussion and all the angst and all the politics is the people that are to blame for this problem are mom and dad, the people who come into this country illegally, like I say, dragging their children with them. That's where the problem ensues. Get into the country legally. Wait at the border. Apply for asylum and wait to hear. I understand that might be a bit of a wait, but when you make the decision that you're going to come into this country illegally with your kids, you're the one that is starting this whole system in motion. Steve in Green Bay. Steve, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Hey, I, I agree 100% with you. I think the, the blame for this thing lies with the uh, the parents. They're the ones breaking the law and, and trying to get by by bringing their kids. And I, I really don't have any sympathy for them. I think you've got to enforce the law. And I really think that, you know, the Democrats have to come to the table on this thing. This resist movement is just getting crazy. It's well, right. And, and you're right. They're, they're looking for the issue du jour. Oh, you've got 2,000 kids that are separated from their parents and, and they're in this tent city. That's an awful situation. I get it. But it's not our government that's caused that problem. It's the people who have just decided we don't care about, you know, what America's laws are. We're going to come into this country and we're going to expect to stay. Well, no country is going to allow you to do that. They're just not. We look at Angela Merkel, what she's going through now for the, the last policy they had on immigration. What they have a million people show up over those years? Right. Yeah. And she's probably going to get booted out of her job sooner rather than later because of that. Yeah. No, thanks for calling. I mean, I get that. That's. That's it. Okay, here's a text. Finally, something I agree with Trump on. The USA is not responsible for the children of people who've come into this country illegally. Well, you know, we, we end up being responsible to an extent because the parents have brought them with us. But you're, you've really got two choices in this regard. One is that if you let people, you either let people come into this country illegally. And if they've got kids, you don't lock them up. You just essentially turn them loose to go wherever they go, and maybe they'll show up again for their hearings, or maybe they won't. Or you say, no, we're, we're not letting you pass go. We're not letting you come into this country. And that means, yes, for at least a temporary period of time, we've got to separate you from your children. But just know that's not going to happen if you don't come in illegally in the first place. 414-799-1620. We continue the conversation next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 145. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 148, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, Bill in Oconomowoc. Hi, Bill. Thanks for waiting. Hi, Jeff. Um, this topic you have today is really troubling. As a Christian, humanitarian needs come first. Politics is fine, and you guys can all argue this and that in politics, but what's going on now is definitely something that is totally against this country. The very people that complain about this they themselves, I guarantee, either benefit or personally hire migrant workers. Uh, sometimes just check it out how many Trump has used. Now, he's used these people, and now he doesn't know how to deal with them, so he does this. And here's the point. This, we can differ in different policies, but when it comes to the inhumane treatment of families and children because of political gain or political point of view, 
we have failed as a whole society, as a country. Okay, Bill, so let's break this down. So do you think that we should have open borders? So if anybody who wants to come into this country should be allowed to do so? Yeah, let's be reasonable. No, 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 let's, let's start. Ask my question. I'm going th- to I'm gonna answer the question. Yes, with control. Yes, with control. And you know how to do it, and I know how no, to do it. No, what, so no, that's not no, what's the control? Tell me. So you, you think anybody who wants to come into this country should be allowed to come into the country? You're telling me you can't comprehend how to process that? Yeah, I can't. I, I don't understand. I can't understand. Bill, I can't understand how anybody with an IQ above plant life would think that we should have open borders. I can't understand how anybody with the IQ of plant life thinks the treatment, inhumane treatment of women and children is great for political gain. Well, but it's not, okay, Bill, but we're not not engaging here. I mean, here's here's, here's the problem, Bill. No civilized country has open borders. I mean, that, that's just the reality. And you say, well, and anybody could do it with control. So what, you either have open borders or, or you don't. I have nothing against legal immigration. But the obvious point is legal immigration. There has to be a system. There has to be some regulation. You cannot just have, and like I say, I don't know that there's a country in the world that just allows anybody to come into the country without any sort of questions being asked and without any restraints. I don't know if there's a country in the world that allows that, and I certainly don't think the United States should be one. Now, if we want to have a debate about should we make it easier for people to come into this country or the you know 11 million people who are in the country as dreamers, should we allow, figure out who are in this country illegally, should we figure out a way that you know, to give them green cards or something? I, I'm open to that. But it's this idea that, no, anybody who wants to just pour into this country should be allowed to do it. That's nuts. I, I mean, I, again, that, that's there's no other country in the world that does that, I don't believe. So I don't know why the U.S. would be. Now, let's go to your point about the inhumane treatment. Nobody is arguing that there should be inhumane treatment. But the reality is, if I make a decision that I am going to enter this country illegally, knowing that I'm not allowed to be here um, and bring my children along as the idea that, hey, this is going to be my get-out-of-jail card free. Well, if you're simply going to allow people who bring their children with them to, again, disappear into the ether in this country, you're never going to be able to control the borders. Now, you seem to think that the idea of separating the children in and of itself is just humane, inhumane. Oh, I, I, that's not a desirable sort of policy, but you can't let the parents go. You can't lock up the children. So what are you going to do? I think what they're trying to say is let's let the word go out. Don't co- come into this country illegally, period. That's where this all kind of boils down to. And this idea that it's a political football or whatever. No, I, I think it's just a fundamental question of securing a country's borders. And like I say, that's you can't do this in Canada. You know, you can't do this in any European country. Just kind of walk in and expect that you're going to be able to stay. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Walt in Appleton. Walt, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Walt. Uh, yes, I, you know, I, I, I think that this whole thing is just blown out of perspective by the Democrats. I think it's, it's, it's a very logical thing for, the, for this country to do. And, you know, it was, it was amazing I'm watching TV this morning, and I'm watching the Today Show, and and you get you get one side of the story, then you then you watch the Fox Channel, and you get a very logical explanation of what's going on. 
I, you know, if people want to say that this is a political bent, it's a political bent on the part of the Democrats. Oh, right. I, I think there's been this this idea that here we, we have an opportunity now. We can, you know, we, we can make we can show how cruel and heartless and what's the word, you know, inhumane this is. Well, again, just don't come into the country. You know, st- okay. apply for asylum, apply for some sort of legal residency, you know, stay in Mexico for a while while you try to work that out. And then there's not going to be an issue. It's only if you enter illegally. And I guarantee you, I mean, the flip side, thanks for call, Walt, the flip side would be if we were keeping the families together but locking them all up, detaining them all, you would have the same sort of claims. This is a problem that is created solely because of individuals making the decision that they want to enter the country illegally. Now, if you want to argue anything other than that, you are essentially a believer. You want to say, okay, we should just have open borders. We should have no restrictions. Anybody can come into this country anytime. And I just, I'm sorry, I'm not there. And if that makes me cruel and heartless and inhumane, I, I can live with that. But I, I'm not there. Like I say, I don't think there's any country in the world that, that is at that point. If you want to adjust our immigration thing to say, okay, well, maybe we can, should we make it easier for people to come in illegally? All right, that that's that's a whole different discussion. But just this idea that if you bring your kids along with you, that essentially gives you a get in this country and then disappear for free thing. Don't buy it. I, I just, I, I don't buy it. Let's talk to um, Dan in Ottawa. Dan, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Dan. How is this any different than if the police go into a house and find that the mom or the dad has neglected their kids? What do we do? We take them away, don't we? Right. So, I mean, the crime at the border is entering illegally. So why shouldn't this be just like a neglect crime where we take the kids away? Right. And in this case, you know, once the matter is adjudicated, once the parents claims, if they're applying for asylum or whatever, once that's adjudicated, the kids go back to them. I mean, it's, it's not like it's a permanent thing. Now, thank, I, I, yeah, I mean, I guess that's kind of how I look at this. You know, one of the questions I know that people have is, well, why can't you keep the family unit together? And this would require a change in the law. That the problem is that right now you can't, if you detain the parents, if you hold them in custody, the law says you can't hold the kids in custody either. So the choice is, all right, we've got to let everybody go. Now, if you want to argue that you keep everybody in custody together and you want to make a change in the law, I, I just, I guess I'd be open to that. But, again, that's going to lead to all sorts of problems as well because then you're going to have the whole families that are in different levels of custody. Bottom line is, if you don't come into this country illegally, this doesn't happen, period. And I guess that's what's so frustrating to me is that gets lost in this whole discussion. If you wait, if you do things the right way, then there's not an issue. So why don't you do things the right way? 157, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 209, Jeff Wreck, WTMJ, so glad to have you with us. All right. If you haven't figured this out, there is an incredible demand for public money throughout this area, and there's no public money to be had. I mean, just think of some of the topics that we have discussed over the last couple weeks. 
you have um, the the county, the former county supervisor, who is now pushing to extend the Miller Park sales tax beyond its sunset date and take that money, that five, that point five percent sales tax in Milwaukee County, and use it um, to support our parks. Now that that is a complete and total non-starter, as we talked about. Matter of fact, after we did that conversation, I heard from a number of people in the stadium board who echoed a point that I made, which is not only is it forget bad policy, it just can't happen. The Miller Park Board was created for the purpose of, again, paying for Miller Park, and you would need the legislature to come in and to do something completely different it wouldn't really involve the Miller Park tax. Theoretically, you could let Miller Park sunset and then create a new tax for the park. But you've got that demand. You have, as we've talked about, this demand. Some people want to rebuild the Mitchell Park domes, and the estimates for that are, I don't know, depending on who you listen to, 50, 60, 70, 80 million dollars to rebuild the domes. And even if you're a huge fan of the domes, my question is, okay, well, explain to me where that money's going to come from. Well, maybe we can do this or that or the other. Well, okay, all right. But then you have the fact that the safety building in Milwaukee County, you know, where they hold the criminal trials, that's, that's a fire trap. I don't know if OSHA's been through there anytime recently, but if they do, they're going to have problems. Essentially, they've got these estimates to say that the, the safety building essentially needs to be completely rebuilt. And that's going to be, something that's going to be tens of millions of dollars, $100 million, whatever that number is. And people don't know where that money is going to come from. So you have all these different demands that are out there for improvements. And we're not even just and, – and this is beyond just even talking about how do you maintain roadways and do things like that. You've got all these different significant and you could argue legitimate sort of things, people who love the domes. Hey, you, we, I can't see taking down the dome. Sure, it's worth $70 million. You know, people who, you know, look at the safety building, yeah, however much that's going to cost, we've got to spend it. You need this. But there's a limit on, on how much you can take. And if you're going to start talking about tax increases, you really have to start measuring, you know, where are our priorities, which brings me to the downtown Milwaukee Convention Center. Now, arguably... When we built the convention center 20-plus years ago, you can argue that it was built too small at the time. The convention center right now totals about 265,000 square feet. That is smaller than convention space in comparable cities. But it, it is what it is, what it is. At the same time, in addition to the convention center, you know, the Wisconsin District Board, has spent a whole bunch of money taking the old Milwaukee Auditorium, where I used to go and watch all-star wrestling matches, and instead of just leveling it like they should have, they took $40, $50 million, and they still owe $23 million on it, and, and they turned it into the Milwaukee Theater, which is a nice facility, but it's an incredible white elephant. It's just grossly underused. There's very little stuff that goes on there. It doesn't come close to paying its way. And again, this... It was a priority decision we made at the time. All right, we're going to take this money, we're going to revamp, we're going to turn the uh, auditorium into the Milwaukee Theater. But, you know, that was a a 40-plus million-dollar project that we're still in the process of paying off. So now you have people who want to expand the downtown convention center. And the report that's on the line says, hey, what we should do is we should take it from 265,000 square feet. We should have a dramatic expansion. Um somewhere between 
Yeah, let, let's let's raise it about another hundred and sixty thousand square feet. Let's take it to four hundred twenty-two thousand, four hundred forty thousand. I mean, a dramatic increase. And the argument is, well, if we do this, this is going to give us a chance, a chance to compete for some bigger type of conventions. All right, which is a good thing. And if you're able to bring bigger conventions here, that means you've got more hotel rooms, you've got more people coming in, you've got more people spending money. You know, it, it's generally speaking, it's a good thing. So why wouldn't you do this? Well, a reason why you might do this is that the estimates to do this type of expansion would cost somewhere between 250 to $275 million dollars to expand the convention center. And the options for doing that, the Wisconsin Center Board really has some very, very limited options. They could they could maybe increase the hotel tax or something like that, but they're not going to get close to $250 million. You would need dedicated funding coming from the legislature to pay this, and that would be probably in the form of, uh, again, a, a sales tax, something like that, to, to fund this with the idea that the Miller Park tax is going to wind down. Maybe you could create a separate board. Maybe you could give the Wisconsin Center District additional taxing authority, whatever. But, you know, 250 to $275 million. Now, again, if you put the money there, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't address the domes. It doesn't address the safety building. It doesn't address the parks. It doesn't address all these other things that we need to have funding for. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And one of the other things that remains a big question is, if we did significantly enlarge the convention center, would it really, I'm talking about in the real world, would it really give us access and result in us getting a lot more conventions that would end up paying for itself. Like I say, I heard this argument back when we were talking about taking the Milwaukee Auditorium and turning it into the Milwaukee Theater, or whatever they call it now. The, the, the truth of the matter is, it was a bad idea then. It never had a chance to pay for itself, and you know we, we've seen it. It's a giant, nice white elephant, but it is a white elephant. So let's tee this up, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line recognizing that we're talking about an extra 250 to 275 million dollars that's going to have to come largely from the public probably in the form of some sort of sales tax or other tax increase all right is this the best use of that money should we expand the convention center and again it's not just a question of gee would it be good to have a lot larger convention center of course it would but the question is is it worth it if we figure out where to get $275 million, will it pay for itself in any reasonable time? Will we, a cold-weather city, be able to draw you know, significantly more conventions? 414-799-1620, we discuss next. And I guess, color me skeptical. I just, I don't, I don't see how making these types of expansions it's going to guarantee that we're going to get anywhere near the revenue back from them. Certainly, if you're going to be talking about, again, a tax, major tax, and I can make the argument that there's a lot of other stuff around here, if we are going to be imposing taxes, that probably have a higher priority. 
414-799-1620. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 217. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 220, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. John and Oconomowoc. Hi, John. Hi, how you doing? Good. What do you think? So I think we need to study it a little more by looking at what other cities have done where they've been successful to see if we could do it here. If you take a look at two that jump out at me, San Antonio and Indianapolis, mm-hmm. neither city has near the natural resources we do, and yet they've done far more expenditure than what you're talking about and been extremely successful with it. That doesn't mean we should do it. I'm just saying before we all jump off and say, well, yes or no, I think you need to go study where it's been successful in other cities. I go to about 12 trade shows a year, and I can tell you a number of the trade shows won't come to Milwaukee because it's not big enough right. to hold the venue. And, and that doesn't mean we should do it. But what I am saying is cities that have far less capability to show off their city and, and draw trade shows like Indianapolis, I mean, yeah, Indianapolis is a success story. Indianapolis has seven hundred thirty-eight thousand square feet. So, even with the even with the the improvements and the additions they're talking about, Indianapolis would still be substantially larger than the one in Milwaukee. But no, you're right. Indianapolis has made a they're they're the the success story that you hear thrown up a lot. You know, another midwestern city. San Antonio has also done it extremely well. With, I mean, you're talking about building that in a desert with nothing for resources and yet they have trade shows they dominate that convention center every year now with just every week there's something new coming in there so uh, i actually think it's worth a look because milwaukee's doing so many wonderful things with its downtown and and i'm actually a pretty big fan of that trolley i was just in san diego last week for a trade show and that trolley was fantastic minneapolis's trolley system it's drawing young people it's keeping young people there it's getting people to want to invest in those cities. And, uh, you know, you look at the convention center, and San Diego's a different city than Milwaukee, so I don't want to draw the parallel. I'm trying to pick two cities that aren't that different than Milwaukee, and Milwaukee's got a lot more to offer than San Antonio or Indianapolis. I think we should take a hard look at it. There How are you going to pay for it? Big return. So those guys paid for it with more money and less resources and showed a very good return. And if you show the, what I'm saying is study how much incremental business came in. Well, well, I guess that's that's the question. So you think that, so you would agree that we're going to have to pay for it by a tax, right? It's it's a combination. I doubt those cities did it all by tax, but I suspect through a combination uh, it was done. But they were very successful, so I don't want it dismissed without looking at it. Well, I mean, okay, thanks for calling. They've been looking at it for for years. I mean, this has been actually, it's been something that's been ongoing since 1998 when we built this arguably too small in the first place. And, and, and yeah, I think Indianapolis is a fair comparison. I don't know about San Antonio because you're talking about a, a warm weather. And I love, I love San Antonio, by the way, that whole Riverwalk area. But you're talking about a warm weather, you're talking about a warm weather city. San Antonio, I think, is different. Indianapolis, um, it, it's true. Indianapolis has really revitalized their downtown area and they've done it around, uh, again, their, uh, They've done it around their sports. They've got the downtown stadium that, that's down there where the the uh, football team plays. You've got the um, you've got the basketball team, I believe, that plays in that downtown area. I think that's all there, and they've really put a ton of money into developing that whole downtown area. And so now you have the conventions. I, I just, I mean, I don't, I don't mean to be a doubting Thomas here, but given all the different money, the amount of money that you're talking about, and given all the different needs. I mean, I've just been hearing this before. I guess I'm not convinced at all that coming to if you were to if you were to spend all that money 
that you would suddenly be drawing all sorts of trade shows that we were not getting now. Now, I understand that because of the size of the building, we end up limiting ourselves. So there's some that won't even look at us. I, I get that. But if you're talking about $225 million, especially given the fact that the taxpayers right now still on the hook for what 90 some million dollars out of the out of the bucks arena that, that's going on and you've got all these other needs that I was talking about starting with the safety building and you've got the pressure for the parks at some point in time you have to prioritize and I have a real question about whether or not on as far as priorities go whether or not that uh, downtown convention center would pay for itself and I guess I acknowledge one of the reasons I'm extremely skeptical about this is I remember the whole Milwaukee theater debate. Oh, we can turn this. This is going to be great. This is going to be this wonderful facility, and we're going to be, it's going to be full all the time. And it, it's just not. It's actually, it's an extremely nice facility. It's a great place to watch shows. They just don't have very many shows. Two, uh, 225, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 235, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Grew is producing the show today and always. Did you, uh, did you ever work in the hospitality industry? Were you ever a waiter? You were a busboy. Okay, not a waiter. Did um, as a when you were working as a busboy, did you get to share in tips or anything? You got to share in tips. Okay, I, I bring this up because there's something interesting going on in all places. The, the District of of Columbia, as a general, you, you we've all heard about this this move to raise fast food workers' salaries to fifteen dollars an hour, right? The the fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage that that and of course. I, I think that would be absolutely ridiculous, and I think it would result in a lot of fast food places turning to automation and a lot of jobs being lost. But but that's just me. But one of the interesting debates that's going on as well has to do with the servers, the waiters, the waitresses who work on tips. Now, right now, for example, in the District of, of Columbia, um, there's already legislation which raises the, the minimum, this would be D.C., $15 an hour minimum wage by 2020. Workers, like bartenders and waiters or waitresses who work on tips are exempted from that right now. Um, there is a much lower minimum wage that's put for them because the idea is, you know, if you're going to get the tips, you know, you, you have that as a supplement for your income. There is an ordinance which is going to be up for vote, which it's a little bit complicated. But essentially, if this ordinance passes, it would move waiters and waitresses closer to the, the $15 an hour guaranteed minimum wage. But, but the effect would be it would probably reduce their tips. A lot, because the, the whole premise is the restaurants would say, okay, um, while we don't necessarily have a no-tipping policy, what you need to understand is, you know, we're, we're paying these salaries to the waiters and waitresses. And interestingly, a lot of people in the hospitality industry are saying, wait a second, you know, we don't want to go this route. We do better. Just, just we, we don't need that $15 an hour. Don't give us that but allow us to keep our tips because we do better. And, of course, this then puts them at a, somewhat of an odds with some other people that work in the hospitality industry. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, I have, 
I, I've, I've never worked in the hospitality industry. If you haven't figured this out, I just don't have the patience for it, and I don't think I had the talent for that. My entire experience when it comes to like drinks is I know how to sit on one side of the bar and, and order drinks, and I know how to look at a menu, and I know how to, to order stuff out of that. But beyond that, I, I'm pretty much lost. I do believe, however, that if you were to say to people who work in the hospitality industry, here's the deal. You could have a minimum wage, guaranteed salary, $10, $12, $15 an hour, pick it. Or you could continue to earn tips. My guess is the vast majority of people working as waiters and waitresses would say, no, we want our tips. Forget about, you know, the mandatory minimum wage. We want our tips. If the trade-off is we're going to lose our tips. All right, let us tee this up. Would you rather, again, for those of you who've worked in the hospitality industry, waiters, waitresses, etc., would you rather just be on a salary, you get your wage, $15 an hour, whatever that is, or would you rather have the ability to work on tips? Small minimum wage, small minimum wage, but you're going to get your tips. My sense is most people would prefer to leave the system as it is. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's start with Skip and Racine. Skip, you're first. Hello. Well, yeah, I think they should. I think they should raise the the minimum wage to a point because, I mean, I know you know you you and a lot of people have made the argument that the people that are doing these jobs are not. They shouldn't be their full time job, and they should um, effort their way out of them, and so on and so forth. But um, one of the things you talked about was, you know, putting automation in. And if they raise the wages, they'll have to put automation in. Well, how about if they put automation in and now that person doesn't have to work 70 hours a week and you can actually pay them a living wage? Well, or, or you end up laying them off. But, I, Skip, I don't, I, don't want to, I don't want to talk about minimum wage right now. I want to talk about tips versus a higher salary. Do you think most people in the, in the hospitality industry, if the trade-off was we're going to give you $15 an hour, but you don't get your tips anymore. Would you think most people would take that, or do you think they'd want to keep being tipped? I think that most people would take that. Okay, thanks for the call, 414-799-1620. All right, I don't think he's right, but I, I, haven't worked in, I haven't worked in the industry. And, of course, we're talking about, right now, we're not talking about the fast food places. We're talking about, I don't know, all the places where you've got the waiters or waitresses who make a living based on their tips together with a small minimum wage. Would you rather have the tips, or would you trade it for a higher minimum wage? 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Mike in Sussex. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, how you doing? Good. What do you think? Well, I am not in the hospitality industry. I, I don't earn tips as part of my wage. First of all, I think that most, most of those folks would prefer to receive tips. But I, as a patron of bars and restaurants and, and other other places that offer uh, services that, that go along with gratuities, I would prefer them to have it be, simply because I think I'm going to get better service when their work is merit-based. Mm-hmm. Well, and that right, that, that's from the perspective of you as the patron, and of course from the perspective of the server, it gives them an incentive to try to make you happy <laughs> because you know they're going to get that extra dough theoretically. Oh, that's exactly right, and, and so we both end up benefiting from that. That's my perspective. Thanks to the call. I appreciate it. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Okay, we continue the conversation. And the reason I bring this up is, is like I say, there's a new ordinance that's going to be voted on in D.C. next week, which would t- 
take a step towards eliminating tipping by increasing the guaranteed minimum wage for servers. Um, and, and the effect would be um, that the people would be inclined to tip a lot less. My sense is, for people in the hospitality industry, they, they'd much rather keep it the way that it is because I think most people think they do better by, you know, I, I grant it's going to vary on it. It's going to vary on night to night and maybe customer to customer, and you're going to have the jerk that comes along and stiffs you or whatever. But big picture, I think most people would rather keep the system as it is. But that's what we're discussing. If you're on the line, please hold on. 243, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 246, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. This is a kind of interesting conversation. In the District of Columbia, by 2020, so the next two-plus years, the minimum wage is going to be $15 an hour. So the fast food workers in D.C., they're going to get at least $15 an hour. There is an exception to that for tipped workers, you know, essentially bartenders, waiters and waitresses. Their minimum wage is dramatically, dramatically lower because, again, they they make their tips. And there's a movement afoot right now. There's going to be an ordinance which is considering raising the minimum wage that's paid to tipped workers. But the flip side of that's going to be, well, they're not going to get anywhere near as much in tips. And interestingly, some of the big labor unions that represent the hospitality industry, they're pushing for the higher wage. A lot of the people who work in the industry are saying, hey, don't worry, stop. We we don't want, we would rather continue to earn tips than, again, have fewer tips but a higher wage. Intuitively, that's where I think most people are who work in the industry. 414-799-1620, Michelle in Hales Corners. Hi, Michelle. Hi. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Would you rather have more money in your paycheck, at least uh, as a salary, or be able to keep your tips? Keep my tips, definitely. (laughs) I've been a server for 35 years. Okay. And I can make $300 in a shift. I would definitely keep my tips. Do you think most of your colleagues would feel the same way? I do. I agree, for sure. Yeah, I mean, and I guess maybe it, it depends a little bit on the type of place you work, but I, I mean, I gotta believe that any moderately busy restaurant, from ranging from a diner to fine dining, that right. you know people and and again moderately busy, and maybe not every night, but I guess most nights, my guess most decent servers probably would make a lot more than they make if they were again getting twelve dollars or fifteen dollars an hour. Absolutely, I agree, one hundred percent. Do you think it also leads to inspiring, not necessarily you, but other people? Do you think it 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 inspires people to give better service to because again, you're kind of you you're sort of on stage and you you know that you are going to be getting tipped. Absolutely, I I go out of my way above and beyond for all of my customers, and it really shows mm-hmm. in the gratuity that I receive. Um, I. Definitely, you know, yeah. center stage, yeah. great service, better tips. Right. <laughs> no, thanks for calling. And, and that's that's kind of the incentive. It's why I think certain types of people are drawn to the hospitality industry. And you, you recognize that, hey, I'm, I'm kind of on stage, and if I provide that great service, I, I'm going to get the, the good tips. It's my, I'm not sure that I'd be great at that. Um, Alex in Port Washington. Hi, Alex. You're on WTMJ. Yeah, hi. How are you? I, I'm also in the hospitality industry, and... And listening to your previous comments from other people, I don't. I can understand why the union would be in favor because they could probably charge more union dues if they get the the rate up. Well, that's kind. Of, yeah, that's what it, you know. Plus, you know, you, you'd see that larger paycheck. You know, 
I mean, at least you'd see the larger guaranteed wage and stuff. And so, yeah, that's more of a justification, join the union, whatever. That's one of the things I think people think, yeah. The only servers that would be in favor of this are ones that are probably not very good. Because if I was getting paid $12 an hour, regardless of the quality of the service, would I really care if the guy's soup got cold? Not really. Mm-hmm. So, so you had to wait an extra five minutes for your meal. Not my problem, buddy. I don't have a cigarette, and I don't smoke either. You know <laughs> what I mean? But, you know, but, you know, so, and the reality is, is that any good person in the hospitality industry would rather stick to the tips because, and from the customer's point of view, the quality of the service will go down because if you've ever traveled to Europe, Yep. So there's no tipping allowed. You know, they feed you whenever they feel like it, you know? Right. Well, it's it's definitely a, a different environment. No, thank, thanks for the call. I mean, it, it is, I mean, and that's it. Yeah, if you do go to Europe, many of the countries, not all of them, but many of the countries, the, the gratuity is is included in the, the bill that you get. And, you know, maybe if you, you give them a little bit on top, if it's outstanding service. But, you know, the idea, I mean, if you want to be viewed as the, the, the kind of quintessential clueless American tourist, I mean, sit at a bistro in France and, and leave a, a 15 or 20% tip, it, it's just not done. Let's talk to, um, is it Leno in Delafield? Yeah, hi. hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. I've been in the industry for... Oh, most of my life, uh, I've, uh, I started as a busboy, I've owned two restaurants, I was a server, a bartender, you name it. But anyways, anyone that I know that is worth uh, their... Uh, Salt. Worth, uh, worthwhile, yeah, yeah. exactly. They would definitely take the tips over the hourly wage. And I mean, it, what I tried to tell my servers, you know, the, especially the more entrepreneurial ones that come in, look at... Here you've got, basically, you're an entrepreneur. You get a section for free from the restaurant, uh, and you get paid, not much, but you get paid to have that section. Now, they have the opportunity to to generate income from that that section. And uh, depending on how well they do, they can make a lot of money. I mean, Mm -hmm. I had an A&W driver uh, drive-in where the car hops could make 200 bucks in a a four-hour shift. 200 bucks in a four-hour shift. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're hustling like crazy. Oh, sure. But it, it was possible. And that's why I had uh, all my car hops were, um, were long-time people there because they knew they, could, they couldn't go anywhere else to make that kind of money in such a short period of time. Well, right. And, and again, it, I mean, plus it's a – don't get me wrong. I mean, it's not an unskilled job. It's a tough job, and I appreciate all that. But it's – I mean, my guess is that it's it's also a job that you have – you you don't need to have a, you know an MBA from Harvard to do the job. You need to have a good work ethic and experience and personality and be able to move things along. But if you can do that, it's the opportunity to really make a living wage. Exactly. On the flip side, you know, you do have servers that come in that really don't put a whole lot of effort into it, and consequently, their income reflects that. But uh, it really is a great way for for people that are aspiring to different different careers to actually have a, an income in a short period of time that it just can't be replaced anywhere else. Yeah, no, thanks for calling. I appreciate it. See, that, that again is my sense, and it's, it's interesting, like I say, this ordinance in D.C., and this is why I brought it up, because this is this is the flip side of the let's raise the minimum wage for everybody to $15 an hour. Well, in the hospitality industry, I think a lot of people in the industry, not the fast food workers, because they're not getting tips, but the people who are working in the restaurants they're saying, hey, don't give us the $15 an hour. We can do better simply by working on tips. And my guess is if you poll people in the hospitality industry who, again, 
are part of this tipped wage, I think I'd say eight out of ten would probably say let's keep it the way it is. All right, it's two fifty four. When we come back, we're going to find out what John. Actually, John is um, off today. John's on vacation. Scott Warris is in for him. We'll find out what he and Melissa and Greg have on their minds. Stick around. 254 Jeff Wagner, WTMJ.